You're listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My. I'm Pio Nanabuddy, and joining me today to talk about medical loss ratios are Shelley Rosenberg and Joe Records, who is joining as a guest rather than a host for today's conversation. We have discussed medical loss ratios, or MLRs, in this space before at some length, including some of the differences among MLR requirements for Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial markets. For the commercial markets, the rules recently changed with the publication of next year's Notice of Benefit and Payment Parameters. Before we get into that, let's start with Shelley for a refresher on what an MLR is and how it applies to health insurance coverage. Hi, Kyle. It's great to be back, and thank you guys so much. I think this is an important and timely topic. And I don't want to spend too much time before we get into the specifics but just a quick reminder of what MLRs are and how they work. So to grossly oversimplify, a medical loss ratio, MLR, is the ratio or percentage of a plan's premium revenue that is spent on claims and other medical costs. So you have the numerator, and that's claims typically, and then the denominator of premium revenue with some taxes and some fees removed. Now, MLR requirements apply in several different markets or for carriers to different lines of business. Different MLRs apply to different state Medicaid contracts. In fact, it was actually Medicaid managed care where MLRs were really developed and tested in the 2000s. MLR requirements apply in Medicare Advantage and with the enactment of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, commercial insurance coverage also has been subject to MLR requirements. So I'm happy to provide more about the history, but maybe we want to move on from the history lesson. Yeah. Uh, So have all of those markets that you just mentioned been subject to the recent regulatory amendments? Today, Kyle, we're focused on the commercial coverage, the MLRs that apply to commercial coverage, because that's what's directly subject to the recent regulatory changes that we're discussing. I would just note that the the other markets, Medicare and Medicaid MLRs, have kind of followed. The the commercial MLR requirements have been a bit of a, a bellwether for where CMS is going with policy under MLR requirements. So what did those regulatory changes actually look like? Well, the big changes really deal with the numerator. That's the category that includes claim costs and other medical expenses. Now, under the commercial MLR statute, there are two categories of costs that go into the numerator. There's expenditures on, quote, on reimbursement for clinical services provided to enrollees and expenditures that are, quote, for activities that improve healthcare quality. Now, both of these categories were revised in the latest regulation. That's right, Shelley. And I would say that the new the new regs really tighten up on what can be included by issuers in the numerator, both on the clinical expenses side and the quality improvement activity side. So first taking the, the clinical expenses, there have been some trends in provider reimbursement where provider incentives are, are paid out based on criteria that don't necessarily have anything to do with clinical care, with actual medical care. I don't want to dive too far into the history here, but thinking about the ways that COVID has had an impact on on medical loss ratios, there have been real uh, swings in the amount of care, particularly of elective care, that people have gotten. And that's had a major impact on on the expenses that issuers have, have taken on, particularly for for clinical care. 
So as issuers are calculating what their MLRs are going to be, one of the ways to get closer to an MLR threshold is to pay out incentives to providers. Now, keep in mind here that for alternative payment arrangements or value-based payment arrangements between issuers and providers, in general, the MLR regs do allow payments to be included in the numerator, even, even value-based, even incentive payments to be included in the numerator. It's, it's almost as if the incentives are part of the claims payments. So the, the regulatory change here tries to walk a fine line by saying that provider incentives are still included in the numerator, but only where those incentives are based on clinical criteria. So the new regulatory language is a little bit ambiguous and, and the preamble explanation also is a bit wishy-washy, but the, I think the, the key here, the, the key thing to remember is that payments need to be tied to clinical criteria. And that's true even if they're, even if the incentives are partly or even primarily geared toward cost containment or efficiency. If a payment to a provider is not based on clinical criteria at all, then the regs seem to say they can't be included in the numerator. The other key area is for quality improvement activities or QIAs. Quality improvement activities are essentially what they sound like. They are expenses that an issuer takes on for the purpose of improving quality of care. In most cases, these are not strictly clinical, and so QIAs are rarely payments to providers. So it, it may seem a little bit conceptually odd to include those in the MLR numerator, but from a policy perspective, it, it does make sense because the, the MLR and regs work by creating incentives for issuers. The MLRs basically disincentivize excessive administrative costs and they limit profits, but they promote spending uh, that's related to medical care and clinical outcomes. QIAs are directly related to clinical outcomes, so they're, they're favored under the, the MLR policy framework. There's a list of, of criteria of what constitutes a QIA in the regulations, and the, uh, the government has released some FAQs kind of clarifying what gets included. The recent revisions to QIAs, uh, they come down to one keyword, really, and it's directly. Issuers now can only include in their numerator expenditures that are directly related to QIAs. And that is a, a difficult line to draw. I'm, I'm afraid that the regulatory preamble lays out in a hyper-simplistic way what gets included as a direct QIA expenditure and, and in a way that, takes into a, that fails to take into account the realities of what issuers do and, and also the, the work done by the many healthcare companies that support issuers' work. The regulations seem to call for issuers to exclude um, overhead associated with QIAs, but to include the salaries of individuals who work directly on QIAs. And then there's also some discussion in the preamble to the rules suggesting that issuers need to somehow differentiate within the payments that they make to QIA vendors to delineate uh, how much of each such payment would be allocable to administrative expenses and profits. So overall, like I said, a tightening up in both aspects of the expenditures that can be included in the MLR numerator. So I just wanted to jump in, Joe, that was super helpful, but I realized that we haven't actually, you know, defined what the thresholds are, and probably most of you know this already, but just again, I'm in the spirit of the history lesson here. Under the ACA, the minimum MLR uh, for the large group market is 85%, and the minimum MLR uh, for the individual market and small group market is 80%. Now, states, of course, um, are free to adopt higher minimum MLRs. And I, I would just add on that point that particularly in certain Medicaid contracts in some states, we've actually seen some MLRs in the upper 80s. 
these MLRs in the upper 80s, that, that's going to really tightly restrict planned activities and emphasize the focus on some of the activities that we've been addressing to boost the numerator. And to build on that point, Shelley, in recent years, a lot of issuers, and this is, this is really a case for carriers in the different markets, but this has been a greater challenge. Meeting MLRs has been a greater challenge for carriers and issuers over the course of the last couple of years. So given that this is a challenging area for carriers, what are we expecting in terms of government enforcement in this area? Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, I think it's a pretty important but difficult question to answer. And the short answer, uh, harkening back to our law school days is, you know, depends. We're not sure yet, <laughs> but, but I'll say a little more on, on what we're thinking. The preamble explanation from CSIO, uh, that's the Center for Consumer Information and Insurance Oversight, the office within CMS that implements the ACA and writes the MLR regs. So the preamble explanation from CSIO, that discussion that accompanied the changes that we're discussing mention MLR examinations that CSIO is conducting, and they make it sound like there are a lot of these happening. But it's, it's pretty striking if you take a look at CSIO's MLR's examination reports page online. So by our count, there were 28 examinations in 2013. There were another 13 in 2014, but then just two more examinations, one each in 2015 and 2017. But again, the, the preamble says that, that you know, we would, we would think that there's going to be uh, quite more examinations that are in the works. We're speculating here, but it's, it's possible that CSIO is in the earlier stages on a number of these examinations, and they just have not yet gotten to the point of a final report. But again, we haven't seen any since 2017. So we'll see. Awesome. Well, thank you both for providing this update into the activity in the always important and interesting MLR space. We appreciate it. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.